I have a hard time pausing. Have you noticed? When I get the momentum going, I like to just charge forward. I remember Brian was gone traveling about 15 years ago, and I got the momentum to sew curtains for my downstairs. And I found the fabric for a dollar a yard. So it was all systems go and charge forward. And I just, I didn't take a break. In fact, I, be, I resented every phone call. I resented every knock at the door. I resented food. I resented anything that could possibly dampen my momentum or take away from my time till I got all the curtains sewn. And not only did I want to get them sewn, I wanted to get them up above the window. So when Brian would walk in, I don't know why, because he's non-reactionary, but I wanted them up like he'd go, whoa, what happened here? But of course he didn't notice. But I actually... I hung. Nothing was going to stop me. I put up all the curtain rods above all the windows. And because I am not gifted in that area, I stripped every single screw so that they're not coming out without taking the wall down with, with them. In fact, it's been like 15 years and I really need new curtains, but I just look at it going, that was so much work and I was so much younger then. And I know the walls are going to come down with that. But do you get like that? Is it hard for you to pause once you get started on something? Once the finish line is in sight and you see the objective in front of you, are you like all systems forward? Is it hard to be gracious at those times um, to someone on the phone, to someone who comes to the door? My oldest daughter, and I don't know why I'm sharing this with you, has a pet name for me. And her pet name is Rushy Rushy. She doesn't even call me mom half the time. She goes, all right, rushy, 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 rushy. And there's a reason for that, obviously. It's not a compliment. It's a, it's a demarcation. One of Brian's favorite words is wait. And he doesn't say it with any sense of urgency. He doesn't like, wait. He says, wait. And it just kind of rolls off his tongue. Wait. And he's asking me to pause. And he knows how hard that is. Because once I get those engines started, I'm revving. I'm like, I'm waiting for the gun to go off. And usually I've got my key in my hand and I'm ready to rush out the door when I hear, wait. My handle's like, turning. It's opening. Not now. I'm almost there. I remember years ago when we were living in Vista and I heard him saying it and I ignored him. I ignored him. I had been indoors for such a long time. My children at the time were like one and a half and three. You know those times when you're like, what does the outdoors look like? What do people sound like? What is it? What is the market like? I think I remember it. And you haven't driven a car in so long, you're not even sure that you still know how to do it. It was, it was one of those times. And I've been cleaning the house. And you know, when your children are one and a half and three, it's non-ending. It's non-ending picking up and cleaning and laundry. And the idea to feel like an adult just sounded so wonderful. And he said, we need milk. And I was like, yes. 
And I, like I said, I'd just been cleaning. I grabbed the keys and I went running out the door and he said, wait. And I thought, no way. I'm almost to freedom. I see the car. The objective is in my sights. And I got in that car and I started to the market. And I saw people at every red light looking over at me and getting these quizzical looks and then smiling. And I thought, wow, I must be having a good day, which is totally amazing because I was cleaning the house. I'm taking care of, care of kids, but man, I still got it. Just a little bit, I still got it. I get to the market. Everyone is so nice to me at the market. I, I figured they must know that I never get out of the house. They're smiling. The, the, the one who's putting the bags in the groceries, he goes, see you, Queenie. And I'm like, whoa, somebody else called me princess. It was such a wonderful day at the market. And I finally came home with all the groceries, so proud of myself. I didn't listen to the wait. And I remember my oldest two, who were one and a half and, and three, they're looking up at me. And my three-year-old, the one who calls me Rushy Rushy, she had this wonderful BFX smile, like, Mom, you're wonderful. And I was looking at her like, even my kids, even my kids admire me. And Brian looks at me, and you know, Brian has, he says so much with his face. And he said, did you have that Hello Kitty crown on the whole time you were gone? It felt like a hairband. I just picked it up when I was vacuuming. It was in my way. It was full of sequins. You know, fit like a hairband. Full of sequins with a great big kitty. Crowned kitty right in the middle of it. And I had run out the door, jumped in the car, driven to the market, done all my shopping, and I had frozen foods to pick up too. And then checked out of the grocery store, driven back, and never once realized why Brian had said, wait. You see, we all need holy pauses in our life. We all need, and have you ever felt like, I've got the momentum going, you see the promises, their insight, and you say, Lord, I know where you're going. I know how we're doing this. I've got this down. One more story, and then I'll get to it, because this is a good one. And it's not in my notes, so you know it's good. Brian and I, our first house was in Huntington Beach, and our master bedroom was 10 by 10. And the queen bed that we put in there left about um, eight inches on each side. So in those days, you could get these uh, particle board tables that you screwed in the legs on, and they had three legs, and you would put it on. And we had to have the lips over that, you know, part of the table was overlapping our bed with the lamps on it and everything. So even though we had a queen-size bed, we couldn't use all of it because six inches was dedicated to our side tables. Otherwise, we couldn't have side tables. In fact, to get in bed, you had to sidestep, sidestep, sidestep. And I remember this one night we were in our house and we gotten it in foreclosure and the people who we had bought it from, they, they had like criminal records and we weren't sure how they felt about us, you know, getting it in foreclosure. So there was a little element of... Um, Concern. So this one night we heard this bang and it was loud. 
And Brian jumped up and he's looking around. He checked out the whole house, all 1,100 square feet and four bedrooms. There was no one in the house. It was safe. And he's like, I don't know what that was. Well, the next night I'm nursing my youngest child and Brian's asleep. And all of a sudden I see his hand just go out like this, boom, and it hits the lamp. And I realize that's the sound I heard last night. It was Brian. And as quick as he hit that lamp, he jumps out of bed and he says, I heard it. And he went running out of the room. And he went running down that way. And you know, I saw it streak by. And then he comes back. He looks through the door. He goes, I'll find them. And he goes running off the other way. And I'm laughing so hard. He thinks I'm scared. Because I'm going, because huh? 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 I want to say, it's you. You are the criminal. It's you. You're the perp. You know, come back. But I can't because I'm laughing so hard. And he thinks I'm totally scared. Like, ah, ah. but I'm not. I'm laughing so hard. And so he keeps running back, and, you know, and forth down the hall looking, looking because he knows he heard that sound. I even woke him up. But you know, that's us without the holy pause. We go charging out. I know what I heard. I know what to do. I know the direction I'm supposed to take. And we're making idiots out of ourselves, to say the least. But God is so good about hitting a holy pause button. And sometimes we're like, what are you doing? I can see it. I'm so close. Right now I have the energy for it. It seems like the atmosphere is perfect. Lord, seriously, a pause, a wait. But God does these holy pauses to remind us of his faithfulness, to give us time to purify and heal, to reflect and celebrate what he's done and the opportunity to taste and enjoy the provisions he's given us, but most of all, to give us an awareness of his presence with us. Because we have the need to be divinely led rather than to try to lead. The Bible promises great things to those who wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Holy pauses do not kill our momentum. They increase it by bringing a divine power into our lives, by giving us divine direction in order to fulfill his divine promises to us. Has God called for a holy pause? Were you on the threshold of a promise? Has the pause button been pushed maybe a week, a month, a year? Do you feel like you're in that holy pause? Israel was. I think about this. Israel is on the threshold. Imagine the momentum that is being built up in Israel. They have done what their forefathers were unable to do in 40 years. They are actually standing in the promised land, not just looking at it, but standing in, a, in it, on it. Two of the greatest kings have already been defeated, Og and Sihon, the giant kings with the giant soldiers. Miraculously, they have crossed the Jordan. God has held back the waters and made a way. The troops of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh 
40,000 men are armed and ready to fight for the promises of God. They can see Jericho in their sights, and they know that fear has gripped the occupants of the land promised them. Rahab, who lives in Jericho, testified to the disposition of the people of the land that they were faint-hearted, filled with terror, hearts melted, courage disappeared, and that was before the renowned crossing of the Jordan. That's before this present miracle that they saw. It is now known an absolute truth resounding through all of Canaan that God is on Israel's uh, side and he is bringing his people into the land of promise. Presently, the people of the land, we're talking the big guys, the king of the Amorites, kings of the Canaanites, those who live on the west side of Jordan, they're hearing about what God has just done with the Jordan River, and their hearts are melting, and their spirits are no longer in them. They are terrified. They've lost the sense of fight. We've all heard the expression, strike while the iron's hot, and that's what they want to do. The iron is hot. It's a time to strike. It seems like the time is now. This is the present atmosphere of Joshua 5, 1. And you'll get to verse 2 of Joshua 5. And what does God do? He hits the holy pause button. He wants to renew the covenant with Israel. Purification and healing before they go forward holy pause. He wants them to rejoice in the Passover and reflect on all he has done since Egypt, holy pause. He wants them to recognize the changes in their lives, no more manna. Now they will eat the produce of the land, holy pause. He wants them to recognize his presence in their lives as commander of the armies of the Lord, holy pause. So what do we see that this holy pause is first for? It's first for a renewal of the covenant, covenant, Joshua 5, 2 through 9. The people needed to reacquaint themselves with who they were. They were the children of Abraham, heirs of the promises given to Abraham. And they needed to identify with the one who originally received the promise to the land, their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And they needed to have this same sign of the covenant. This sign, this act, would remind them of who they were, but also why they were receiving the promises. They were receiving the promises because of God's promises to Abraham. Because of God's goodness. Because he loved Abraham. Because of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his people to his friend, Abraham. It would remind them of where they were, that they were actually in the land of promise, the same land that Abraham walked in, the same land where God said, Abraham, wherever the sole of your feet touch, I will give to you and to your descendants after you. Their renewal also included remembering the miracle and miracles that God had done 
They needed to respond to God's promise personally. They needed to personally enter into this covenant with God, the covenant of their fathers, the covenant of Abraham. Because the promises are only in the covenant. Just as today, all the promises of God are in Christ. There are no promises outside of Christ. All the promises are through Jesus. They needed to be refined. They needed to have part of their flesh or that sinful nature cut off. In John 15, 2, Jesus said that everyone who comes to him, his father prunes so that the person who comes to Christ might bear more fruit. He wounds us that we may enter his promises and so that we can be productive and even more productive in the promises he gives us. The people needed to heal. You know, there is a recovery time from pruning. In fact, I've been told that plants actually go into a kind of shock when they're pruned. And I'm sure these men who were circumcised were in kind of a state of shock. But, you know, pruning is a shock to your plant. I remember we had these um, beautiful potato plants in our front yard, and they got in some kind of weird fungus on them. And I cut them back so much. I, I cut them back till they were just about two feet high, and they've been huge. And Brian says, I'm sure you killed them. You really killed them. And I said, no, I read the book. I did it at the right time in the right way. But they were so full of fungus. I had to cut them till there was not one blossom, not one leaf, not one even little twig branch on those things. I had to completely prune them. But by that spring, they were more beautiful and healthier than they had ever been before. But they took all of winter to recover. And they needed that time to recover so after Israel had cut away this foreskin, they needed to heal. God's refinement always requires a time of healing. We often need to recognize what was pruned and why it was pruned and what it means. There was a need of a physical healing, but often when we're pruned, we need a mental healing an emotional healing, and even a spiritual healing. I have a friend who's a nurse, and she said to me, nothing aids healing like rest. The greatest thing you can do to heal is rest. David said in Psalm 23, verse 2, that God, his great shepherd, makes him lie down in green pastures. It's a forced rest or a forced pause. These men had been born in the wilderness, and they hadn't yet been circumcised. The circumcision time had not been right, or the time for pruning. There was a special time set aside for this refining and for this healing. And God knows when that time is right, and it requires a holy pause. Those who had been circumcised were circumcised in Egypt. But they had died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. The men that came out of Israel still, even though they were circumcised, still had Egypt in their blood. And so the men who had walked through the wilderness 
they still lived as if they were slaves to Egypt. They never fully embraced the call of God on their lives. Though they were miraculously delivered from Egypt, sustained with manna, received water from rocks, given the law and tabernacle, organized into a nation, divinely sustained, in their hearts they kept thinking about Egypt. They still saw themselves as slaves to Egypt. And at times they longed to return to Egypt because of the food, the land, the lifestyle, and what was familiar to them. Now a whole new generation has been born and grown up in the wilderness, and they don't know Egypt. They don't remember. They, they have nothing to recall Egypt. No remembrance. Old things are passed away. No memory. No longing for Egypt. It's completely gone, and they no longer identify themselves as slaves. And so God hits the holy pause button to allow them time to refine, heal, and redefine them as the covenant people of God. And he uses this time to completely roll away the reproach of Egypt. You see, God will call, call for a holy pause in your life because maybe you're not defining yourself in the right way. Maybe you still think of yourself as that person outside of Christ before the promises. And that can interfere with receiving the promises. And there needs to be a redefining of who you are as a child of God in the covenant by Jesus Christ. Next in Joshua 5.10, we read that the holy pause button was pressed in order to give them a time of reflection and celebration. Before going further, they needed to celebrate the Passover. It was the anniversary of their deliverance from Egypt. Anniversaries are always a time of reflection. I know that when Brian and I have celebrate our anniversaries, we go out and we talk about when we dated and how we first met each other, what first attracted us to each other, how all the things that we've survived, like our four children. So with Israel, they were to, to remember how God called them, brought them together that incredible night when the angel of death passed over their houses because they were marked by the blood of the lamb. And forever, this was to be in the remembrance of the children of Israel. They were to reflect on it, God's deliverance. They were to tell the story, especially to those who had not lived through it because they were gone. But these were the children of those who had experienced it, and it was now their story to tell. The history was not to be lost. I know that... Um, I love to tell my dad and my mom's stories, my grandma and my grandpa's stories. That's part of my history. That's, that's part of who I am and how God has worked in my family's life. And I love to pass it down to my children. You know, I don't have money. I don't have possessions to pass on to my children. But I have the heritage of faith. And I can pass on these faith stories to my children so they're not lost. And it helps to 
identify and define my children so they know who they are. They get this sense of security. This is who you are. You're part of these stories of faith. You were prayed for before you even existed. You were thought about. They were to eat the food of the land. Um, to, To understand a little bit of this is part of the promise that God is bringing you into. They were to kill the lamb and remember the lamb that was slain. They were to eat the bitter herbs to remember their bondage in Egypt. And they were to take the wine to remember the promises of God and where they were now. And then they were to sing songs at Passover. And one of the songs they sang is found in Exodus chapter 15. Let me read that song to you. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. It's a ballad. It's one of those songs that just reminds you of everything that God has done. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sink to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desires shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sink like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be still a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Exodus 15, 1 through 18. Would that not bless them? as they remembered what God had promised this prophecy, and as they realized that they were living it out, they were the fulfillment already of the promises of God. And know that as God had been faithful thus far, he would be faithful. Imagine the confidence this song would bring to those who had just renewed the covenant with God. Isn't that worth pausing for? Isn't that worth pausing for? They were to celebrate God's power, God's mercy, God's work, the plagues on Egypt, the miraculous deliverance. 
on the Passover night. The parting of the Red Sea, the water from rocks, the manna that daily came, the cloud by day, the pillar by night, the constant guidance, the constant protection, the sustainment, 40 years where other men could not last a week. They were to celebrate God's promises. Every remembrance of God is a promise for the future. His past deliverance is a promise of future deliverance. His past victory in our lives is a promise of future victory. His past provision is a promise of future provision. His past faithfulness is a promise of future faithfulness. His past guidance is a promise of future guidance. His past protection is a promise of future protection. His past sustenance is a promise that he will sustain us in the future. We need that holy pause to reflect on these things and to celebrate. Israel needed this holy pause to reflect and celebrate all that God had done thus far to secure their dependency on God, strengthen their faith, and excite them for the future. A holy pause to enjoy the blessings of God, Joshua 5, 11 through 12. The Passover was the very last time manna would be included in their diet. Having passed over Jordan into the land of promise, they now had the first taste of the promises of a God. They were eating it. They were eating the produce of the land. Remember, they were promised a land full of milk and honey. These are agricultural terms. It, it tells you that there's um, bees who are cross-pollinating. So we have produce. It tells you that the grass is rich, so the cows are um, eating to their fill and being able to produce lots and lots of milk. So they ate unleavened bread from the fields of wheat in Israel. They did parched or roasted grain, kind of like popcorn from the plain. Somebody said, this reminds me of Thanksgiving. And yes, it was eating the first harvest of the land that God had promised. And it was this same day that the manna ceased. But they were to realize that though God had provided 40 years through manna, he was still the one in charge of the provision. But now he was going to do it in a new way by blessing the crops, by blessing the land, by blessing the weather, giving them rain. They needed to get used to the new diet and the new flavors that they would live by. They needed to enjoy the food. They needed to try out new recipes, to learn new ways of preparing it. Think about it, 40 years of doing nothing but manna and, you know, a little bit of steak and lamb every once in a while, but mainly manna. And now they're like, wait, wait, I know my mom had a recipe for this stuff. I got to look it up. Got to remember how to make it. But they also had to let their digestive tract and appetite catch up with the change. A holy pause. They needed to pause and reflect on the changes in their life. Israel's lifestyle would now be totally different as represented by the food. This was the foretaste of change from nomads to city dwellers, from gathering manna every morning to working the land, from traveling as a huge company to living in or with their tribe and settling in villages. This is the last time they would all be together as the nation of Israel. 
camping together. The camping trip is almost over and everyone's gonna go to their separate areas. You know, it's like that, that Christmas when all my, four of my kids, one of my children is not gonna be with us this Christmas. And I think back to those Christmases when it seemed like we'd always be together, that it would just be, you know, they were young and, you know, just the way the dynamics of the family were. I never foresaw a day or a time when Christmas wouldn't be like that. And there's a need to adjust to the changes because if we don't adjust to the changes, we'll always be looking to the past, right? We won't embrace what we have and the goodness and the joy that we have. I remember my first Christmas that was different, and I might have told you this, but we were living in England, and we couldn't afford to go home for Christmas. It was our first year out on the mission field. We bought a Christmas tree, but we didn't know that you don't put Christmas trees in front of the radiator because they dry out and the needles turn brown and rain down on all your presents. We didn't have enough money for Christmas presents, so um, we went to the pound store where everything is just a pound, and everyone got five presents because that's all we had was five pounds per child. And yet it turned out to be one of the tenderest, sweetest Christmases. The next year we're like, we can't have another Christmas like that because it was a little Charlie Brownish. And so we invited anyone in our church in London who didn't have a place to go for Christmas to come to our house and to bring a present that was under five pounds. That way we knew our children would get something. Just kidding. So we, we had all these people come, and I made all this food. And I remember my kids remarking, and it was the first Christmas without uh, my oldest daughter there. And the other kids said, wow, I didn't think Christmas could be this good. I, I didn't think that God could bless it like this. We had so much fun. But you see, we need that holy pause, or we won't embrace and appreciate what we have and what God is doing. They needed to pause and become accustomed to the change. Sometimes a change is thrust upon us, and we don't have the time to simply process it or adjust. Change that happens too quickly can have adverse effects on progress and personalities. So God gives us holy pauses so we can adjust and begin to process so we can embrace and enjoy. Now, this holy pause was also to redirect their cause, direction, and power source. In Joshua 5, 13 through 15, Joshua is walking in the fields near Jericho when he suddenly sees a great soldier with his sword drawn. Now, a drawn sword was the commander's sign to go forward into battle. And perhaps you've seen it in some of the old movies where they bring out their sword and they say... Yeah, it's the same thing you say when you go shopping at South Coast Plaza. Charge. You know, men do it with swords. We do it with credit cards. Charge. Sorry. Ruined a really holy moment. But a drawn sword was the commander's sign to go for it. And Joshua immediately was alarmed at this sight. Why? Because he's near enemy lines. He's alone. And he asks immediately of this man, are you with us or for our enemies? This is too often the question we ask of God. Lord, are you with me 
Are you with my neighbor? Are you for brain or are you for me? You know, whose side are you on, God? Because I think I've got a really good cause here, God. Are you on my side? And that is not the question to ask. You know, it's always dangerous to personalize the battle. When we make it, Lord, are you on my side? That makes the battle about us. But the battle must always be the Lord's purposes. When the battle is about us, we are the commanders. But when the battle is about God and his purposes, he's the commander. Saul, the first king of Israel, was famous for making the battle about himself. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we read, we read that he says to the troops of Israel, Cursed be any man who eats till Saul is avenged of his enemies this day. Now, right before that, Saul was sitting, feeling sorry for himself under this tamarisk tree. Most of his troops had deserted him. We're told that the men that were with him were afraid. But his son, Jonathan, turned to his armor bearer and says, you know what? It's nothing for God to say with many or with few. Let's take on these Philistines and see if the Lord might just be with us. Sure enough, the Lord was with Jonathan. We're told that as Jonathan scaled the cliff and went into the camp of the Philistines, the Philistines began to fall back. The earth trembled. Saul looks up and says, what's going on? Because he saw the Philistines begin to flee. And they took a inventory of who was in the camp, realized that Jonathan was missing. Saul charges into battle, but he takes credit for the battle, and he begins to call the Philistines his enemies. They're not God's enemies. They're not the enemies of Israel. He's personalized this battle. And do you know what it did? It demoralized his soldiers because now they're fighting for a king that's not trustworthy, a king that's filled with self-pity, a king that others have deserted. It brought a curse on his soldiers because they weren't allowed to eat or restrengthen themselves with food. It lessened the effectiveness of the soldiers in Israel. It led to weakness and self-pity, and it removed God from the battle. The responsibility was no longer God's to bring them into victory. As Jonathan had seen, if the Lord is for us, then the enemy is nothing. But suddenly, when Saul made the battle about himself, the responsibility was on the troops rather than God to avenge King Saul. Rather than fighting for the people of God, the purposes of God, with God. The answer of this commander is rightly no to Joshua. Are you for me or for our enemies? Are you for us or for our enemies? No. Don't you love that? No. No. What he's saying is the battle is not about you, Joshua. It's not even about the people of Israel. The battle is about the promises of God. You're going to go forward fighting for the promises of God, showcasing God's faithfulness. The battle belongs to God and not to men. And the battle is not about enemies. You see, if we make it about our enemies, we will be constantly obsessing 
about their forces. How strong are they? How many do they have? We will constantly be intimidated by their powers and overly aware of their activities. The battle must be about our God and the promises of our God so that we center our purposes in his purposes and we find our power in his power and we get behind him in obedience to his instructions. Joshua himself personally needed this holy pause. He was an old man with a great task. He was looking at a fortified city, barring the way into the promises of God. He no doubt was preoccupied with this city. Remember, he sent the spies. Find out how strong they are. Find out what kind of weapons they have. Find out how many men they have. But he needed to realign himself with God. So the commander said to Joshua, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I think that for Joshua, this must have been a huge sigh of relief. Thank God you're here. It's no longer on my shoulders. Joshua did not have to be in charge. He simply had to obey divine orders. Joshua was not alone. God was going before Joshua. All the armies of heaven were present, and all the power of God was going with them and before them. God's power was here now and active, and Joshua fell to his face. He could go weak because of the strength of the Lord was present and taking over. Someone greater with a greater army was present to take them into the promises of God. He wasn't responsible. In my own life, I have felt this sigh of relief. You know, as moms, there are times we have to be so strong. You know those times? Your, your husband's not home. Um, maybe a neighbor is yelling at you because your son just threw a rock in his yard that broke a window. Not like that actually ever happened to me, but it did. And I'm, I'm being very strong to the neighbor. And yes, I will take care of it. My son, I'm sorry about that. You just give me the bill. I'll pay for it. No need to appear before Judge Judy. We will take care of this. And, you know, no problem. And, you know, he's like screaming at me. And I'm just being strong and very calm. And all of a sudden, Brian drives up in the car. And I'm like, you know, I just can't take this anymore. You need to talk to my husband. You know, it was so great. I could go weak. I could be a woman. I could cry and say, what is wrong with you? What is this obsession you have with breaking windows to my son who broke six before he was even 15 years old from shower doors to large picture windows to neighbors' houses? I don't know. It's perfectly clear he had a problem with glass. But I could go weak. I could go weak at that time. I remember a time when a close friend of um, mine, the churches, it was a woman who died. Brian was out on a fishing trip with her husband and these other men, and they were on um, the road. They were, they were somewhere out in the 15, coming back. There was no cell phone reception, and this man didn't know that his wife had passed away. It was rather suddenly. And everybody in the church was seeking their direction from me. And I was saying, you know, I was staying very calm, I, they said, you know, her daughter's here. 
And so I'm taking the daughter into another room. I'm ministering to the daughter. I'm coming out and I'm telling, you know, this person is crying. I was met by this one person who's just sobbing in the parking lot because she had been kind of mean to this lady. And I'm holding her and saying, you're forgiven. It's over. There's grace for this. You know, they're saying, what do we do? And I said, we call the mortuary. They're going to pick up the body. Let's take it here. And I'm doing all this stuff. And I have to be strong for everybody in the church at that moment. And then into the parking lot, Brian drives in. And I could go weak. And I could start to cry. And I could mourn for the friend I had just lost. And I could be a girlfriend and I could be a mourner. I didn't have to be so strong because Brian, he's my hero. He came in and he took over and he took the husband into another room. And he told the husband and they came out arm in arm. It was like the most precious thing. But I think Joshua felt that way. The hero is here. My ultimate hero is with me and for me. I don't have to be strong. I can go as weak as a baby. I can fall on my face and I can simply worship because I am so safe because this one is so guaranteed. This one is so sure that it's all, it's done. And he says, what do you want me to do? Look at the first order of victory. What is the first thing to do to inherit the promise? Take off your sandals. Because you're on holy ground. Because the promises of God are holy ground and we cannot enter with our own shoes. We cannot enter in our own powers. We cannot enter in our own strength. We have to realize this is holy ground. This is why the holy pause button. Because it's time to take off our shoes and worship. A wise woman I once knew said, when we worship God works. And she got that from the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. But as we worship, God works. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You see, if we don't have the holy pause button with that momentum, we're going to charge out in our own strength and defeat is certain. But when we draw back, And we take our strength from the Lord. And we realize that the battle is not about us and them. But it's about following Jesus. By having our eyes absolutely on Jesus. By having him first and foremost. Then, then victory is absolutely assured. Joshua could be honest with his weakness. Because his weakness, his age, his strength level, his administrative abilities, his strategies didn't matter anymore. Didn't matter. Because God was here. And God's strength was here. God's strategy was here. God's power was here. He could give it all to God. God was undertaking. God was overtaking. And God was guaranteeing the victory. So Joshua worshiped Shekah. He humbled himself. He paid homage. It is always so important to realize how holy the moment is. How holy the presence of 
the land you stand in. You know you are only where you are by the goodness of God. Sometimes we forget how holy the ground is that is under our feet. How holy this very place that we are alive, that we are breathing, that we've made it this far. We're standing on holy ground. We need to realize how holy the promise is. You know, sometimes we are after holy promises in the most fleshly ways, aren't we? I'm going to make that kid walk with Jesus if I have to, you know? Douse him with gasoline and set him on fire. You know, we're going to do it in the most unholy ways. We're going to lecture. We're going to restrict. We're going to pound it in them. We need to realize how holy the promise is. And a holy promise requires holy activity. It requires holy ways. And we need to realize the holiness of the objective. This is a holy objective. When you're praying that your kids will walk with Jesus, that's a holy objective. And it requires the holiness of God. It requires complete, absolute dependency on the Lord. Shoes off. Shoes off. And Joshua did so. Joshua took that holy pause, taking his shoes off, worshiping, waiting, and simply feeling the holiness of the ground, the commander, the promise, the Lord. If we are to possess the exceeding great precious and holy promises that God has for us, God is going to have holy pauses in our life. God will interrupt our march forward. God will quench our momentum to make sure that it's not adrenaline, but his power we were on in. God will refine us, weakening us, pruning us, giving us times of rest and healing. God will require a Passover, a reflective time of celebration in which he will give us a foretaste of what is to come, help us to adjust to the changes ahead. Then God will center our objectives, our plans, our powers to his promises, his plans, his power. For some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You saw the promises, you seem so close, and suddenly there's a holy pause button. And you're a little bit frustrated this morning because you felt the momentum. You thought you knew the direction your life was going. It seemed like all systems were go, and suddenly there's a pause. And for some of you, it's been a long pause. But take this pause and make it a holy pause. Let God use it to refine you, to remove the last remnants of Egypt from you, to recovenant with you a fresh dedication, a time to recover and heal, to roll away the reproach from your life. Take time, make it a holy pause, to reflect and celebrate all God has done for you personally, to remember how he has delivered you through Jesus Christ, your salvation, to think of all the ways you have been sustained, covered, blessed, insulated, and protected through this wilderness journey. Take time to enjoy all that God is bringing into your life. Take inventory of the changes. Process them. Embrace them. Get used to their taste. Enjoy them. 
Refocus your attention off Jericho, off the enemies, off the powers and opposition against you. Don't make your life about your enemies or their powers, but make it about God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. Next week, all of America will be taking a holy pause. Some will recognize the holiness, and some will just make turkeys out of themselves. But it's Thanksgiving. For some, it's just about food, family, and friends. But we can make it a holy pause. It doesn't just have to be about a day. But we can really make it a reflective, celebratory time of just giving thanks. But we don't just have to do this once a year. We can add holy pauses into everyday personal devotions where we let God refine us where we let God prune, where we let God heal us, where we let God remind us of all the good things he's done for us, where we celebrate with even song and joy, where we recognize his presence in our lives and the promises he's given us. We can do this because we do this every week, bi-weekly, tri-weekly, and every time we gather as a church and fellowship with the saints, we are doing these things. It's a holy pause time. Church is a holy pause time. Have you ever thought on Sunday, have you ever had a to-do list and go, oh, but first I got to go to church? Yeah, no, I got to, you know, and you're like, okay, song, song. Okay, that was three songs, four songs. Okay, where's the sermon? Okay, offering sermon. Okay, now benediction. Okay, now I'm going to get on my day. And you know, I really believe Sunday morning is a holy pause. It's a holy pause to your week. Before you go on to the rest of your week, take this holy pause time. Before you get to your to-do list on Sunday, take this holy pause time. For some of you, Friday morning is a holy pause. And sometimes you're thinking like, do I go or do I not go? I've got so much to do. It's a holy pause time. And we need these holy pauses in our life. And I'm going to ask you, by the power of God, to take advantage of this holy pause time in your life. It's God's way of getting our attention before we can go in and really begin to fight for, possess, and dwell in the promises of God. Will you stand up? May God bless you in this time of holy pause. May he refine you. May he cut away all the reproach from your life, all the false identities that the enemy and the world has tried to give you. May he redefine you as his daughter, as his very own, the beloved, the one in the covenant of divine glory, heir of Christ Jesus. May he bring to your memory all the great things he has done for you. And may he put a song in your heart. And may he bless your footsteps and give you a little jig and glory.
May he help you to recognize his presence. May he remove from you that preoccupation with your enemies. And may you forget about Jericho because you are so aware of his presence and his face and his beauty and his power and the glory that is with you. May you, by the Spirit of the Holy God, receive this as a gift, a holy pause. May you embrace it. May you enjoy it. And may you heal and grow and be so blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we pray by the power of Jesus Christ invested in us that you will make it so. Amen.